I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lubetsky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks, a food company that produces sweet and savory bars with whole nuts, spices, and fruit, among other products. Kind is sold in a diversity of locations, including Whole Foods, Costco, Amtrak trains, and newspaper stands. Daniel is also the founder of PeaceWorks, a producer of Mediterranean spreads, such as tapenades, hummus, and baba ganoush. PeaceWorks aims to foster business relationships among neighbors in the Middle East and other groups in conflict as a way to reduce conflict in those regions. Daniel grew up in Mexico City and speaks Spanish, English, Hebrew, and French, and a little bit of Yiddish, no? Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica. Before we dig into KIND, I want to talk about PeaceWorks, which was the company you founded in 1993 that focuses on Mediterranean spreads. What was the germ for founding this food company in the early 90s? I didn't know it was going to be a food company. It was more about trying to use business as a force for bringing Arabs and Israelis together. That was what I was very passionate about since uh, writing my college thesis and law school work about how to use market forces to help trading partners shatter culture stereotypes, cement relations with each other. So that was the impetus of what I was doing. And it became a food company because as I was looking for ventures, I was looking in apparel, I was looking in uh, Dead Sea Minerals, and food became the area where I found my passions best. Uh, I didn't understand Dead Sea Minerals too well, but I understood food, and And, that's how it started. And so food was secondary uh, to the primary mission was to facilitate joint ventures among uh, conflicting neighbors. So what's an example of a collaboration which you established at PeaceWorks uh, between two conflicting groups? Well, the flagship venture, which still exists today, which is how we started, was um, my discovery of a sundry tomato spread. And when I, long story short, found out, the company had gone bankrupt because it was sourcing its glass jars from Portugal and its sundry tomatoes from Italy, and it was very expensive. And when I came to Yoel Benesh, the Israeli manufacturer, and told him about my ideas, he had Arab friends, and he really believed in the philosophy of what we're trying to do with PeaceWorks. But I also showed him that he could benefit economically, that he could buy the glass jars from Egypt instead of Portugal, the sun-dried tomatoes from Turkish suppliers instead of um, Italian ones. So they started buying basil and olives and olive oil from Palestinian citizens of the West Bank and Gaza, and that's how it started. How did you secure distribution in the United States with PeaceWorks? Can you walk through that process? Because in a way, uh, you piggybacked on that uh, with KIND. Well, I didn't know what I was doing, so I emptied my brief, my legal briefcase. Literally, I had this big briefcase for carrying uh, legal documents, and I filled it up with jars of sun-dried tomato spreads, basil pestos, olive spreads. And I would start at the top of Broadway on 122nd Street on the west side and then just start walking store by store till I would go at 7 a.m. in the morning till I would end at 7 p.m. at night in the bottom of Wall Street, and then I would cross the next day and I would go up uh, Broadway on the other side of Broadway. And Broadway was an important choice because it was the the avenue that I found to have the most concentration of grocery stores. So, so I, I knew Second Avenue, I knew Third Avenue, I knew Madison, I did all of them, but Broadway was the juiciest. And I would not go to the next store unless I got either an order 
or an explanation for what I needed to do different in order to get an order the next time. And I drove many people nuts because everything was wrong, but they were basically taught me, like Scott Goldshine and Mr. Zabar from Zabar's basically taught me what the consumers were looking for. So I really learned a lot of what I do today from all the store managers and buyers at the grocery shops and bodegas in New York City. What is an example of something that Mr. Zabar, you know, taught you? Just... <laughs> um, <laughs> everything. I mean, I came in and they didn't have much patience because they had thousands of consumers going around and here I am and I don't know what I'm doing. But they, they really liked that I, they really cared about my mission. And I think they just had patience with me. So they taught me how, what is the margin requirements for, for a retailer, for a distributor and for yourself so that you can run an ongoing business. Um, they taught me about the labels, how to make sure that the name is clearer. The jars back then were oozing olive oil out of them and <laughs> that was not acceptable. So it was a lot of sessions. You mentioned that you had a law degree. You went to Stanford Law School and you became a lawyer. Uh, and the idea for PeaceWorks came out of a paper, your thesis that you wrote, which I believe was entitled Incentives for Peace and Profits, Federal Legislation to Encourage U.S. Enterprises to Invest in Arab-Israeli Joint Ventures. Yeah, it became a very famous document among doctors because if you were having insomnia and were having trouble falling asleep, they would give it to you. You would read it and you would fall asleep <laughs> immediately because it was the most theoretical, boring thing in the world. It was totally devoid of practical use, but it was beautiful theoretically. You dabbled in the law uh, before starting businesses. You had a stint at Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, you clerked for Supreme Justice in Texas. Did you think that you might want a career in law? I loved the law. It was not that I was trying to escape the law. I just had this, you called it a germ. I had this bug inside me that, that I just really felt that my mission in life was to try to build bridges and to end the Arab-Israeli conflict. And suddenly here's the Oslo peace process. So all my ideas that I've been sharing for several years, suddenly they go from being delusional to being slightly tenable. And I'm like, all right, I have to try to pursue it and I have to try it. You also had a kind of a social ethos in your family. Your father was a prominent figure uh, in your upbringing and the way you think about the world. He was a Holocaust survivor having survived Dachau, the concentration camp in Germany. Can you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, my dad was... Uh, my greatest hero and role model. Uh, he was the most humble person. He built himself from scratch. He came to Mexico after the war. He was 15 and a half years old when the war started, 16 when he got to Mexico. He didn't speak Spanish or English. He's uh, from Lithuania originally. Yeah, he was born in Riga, Latvia and raised in Lithuania when he was nine years old, 1939. Um, the war started. And... I'll tell you the story, it's a little strong, but um, he was coming back with his uh, father to the apartment house where they lived, and the superintendent showed them into where the garage was, and he opened the door of the garage, and there was a pile of bodies. And he told my grandfather, you see all these people? They're all the Jews in the building, and you're lucky that... You always were nice to me and treated me with respect and kindness. So I spared you and your family, but get out before I change my mind. So that night, my father, who's nine years old, and his brother and my grandfather and grandmother packed whatever they could carry, and then they left into a ghetto. And uh, that 
was a story that my dad told me when I was nine years old. And my mom said, Roman, what are you doing? This kid is nine years old. You know, you're going to, what are you doing? Please stop telling him this. And my dad said, look, he's nine years old and he needs to hear it. I was nine years old and I needed to live it. But the other thing that was no less powerful and important was the stories that he told me about people that in the worst of circumstances would rise up and do something kind, like this German soldier that threw a potato to him. And my dad used to tell the story about how he felt he was going to die and he was really malnourished and that potato meant for him the difference and survival and uh, the soldier took a risk by giving him food for, for the soldiers. So those were the stories that I most admired, the way my dad always remembered the moments of kindness. I mean, it's the darkest of moments. And um, there's a quote that I, I really love that connects to that about from Rabbi Hillel that says, in a place where there is no humanity, strive thou to be human. So the the name Kind Healthy Snacks, did your father have influence on the naming of the product? The the name Kind was created by my team and I. It's really fascinating that we finally zoned in on it because it wasn't, today it's so obvious that that's perfect name for us. But back then, we had all these crazy ideas for the name. The reason we came up with Kind is that it had human attributes that we were really trying to aspire to be a part, to to define us you know to do the kind thing for your body to do the kind thing for your taste buds and to do the kind thing for your world it's striking that your father uh, was very forthcoming with his stories and chose to talk about the wartime versus others who really receded and did not tell their family uh, such stories, just uh, more for self-preservation and family's preservation than anything. What was the impetus for your family's, uh, your father's moving to Mexico, of all places? Uh, Jessica, after can the I war? just comment on the thing you just said, because it's really important. I was surrounded by other Holocaust survivors growing up, and they I loved them dearly, but you could tell that they were just consumed by the horrible horrors that they had gone through, and they couldn't have a positive outlook. And my dad, or, or there were others that were able to just shut it out and just have a positive life moving forward. My dad had the strength to recall those horrors, but in a positive way, and still he was such a sweet, kind-hearted man, very gregarious, always making people laugh, always almost like he saw his mission to make people have a better day and make people laugh. Did you see the movie uh, Life is Beautiful? So when I saw that movie, I, I, I cried a lot. And then I was a little bit troubled because I felt guilty to be laughing also. And I asked my dad, you know, it never crossed my mind that in such horrible circumstances, you could actually say jokes in the middle of a concentration camp. And my dad said, the opposite. The only reason my dad felt that he survived is because my grandfather was a really funny mm. joke teller and he would entertain the, the Jewish inmates and the German soldiers with funny stories and make people more humane and more human by making them laugh and just find particularly in those, those more dark moments some, some levity. You were brought up in Mexico City. How was being Jewish uh, in a predominantly Christian place? Well, I also lived in a very insulated cocoon. You pointed out earlier, I, I learned Yiddish at an early age, and I learned Yiddish before I learned Hebrew or English. And for my mom, it was very important that I build bridges. So she introduced me to this kid 
named Luis, who we, we made play dates in our neighborhood for me to be friends with him. And I was in such a cocoon that, you know, we were playing once and I said, you know, if you do this, I'm going to kick you in the tuches. And he says, what? What is this tuches thing? And I'm like, eh, stop joking. Tuches, tushin, you're, you're, you're <laughs> back, you're behind, you're ass. And he's like, no, that's nalga. I, I didn't know that tuches was a word in Yiddish. There were many other words that I can't tell you right now mm-hmm. because they're stronger that I thought were Spanish, but were actually Yiddish. Mm-hmm. That's the... That's the world that I was raised in. And I I think my mom uh, was the one that gave us the impetus to make sure that we always built uh, relationships with people that were different from us. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lebetsky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks. We'll hear more from Daniel coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lebetsky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks, a food company that produces sweet and savory bars with a variety of whole nuts, spices, and fruit, among other products like granola. Daniel launched Kind in 2003, and its products can be found in several diverse locations, ranging from Whole Foods to convenience stores and gas stations. So here you are. You founded PeaceWorks. You were running this this Mediterranean food spread company. And what was the germ then for, for Kind Bars? I was traveling all over, and I was very frustrated with my lack of healthy snacking options. It felt that if it was healthful and wholesome, it would not travel well. And what would travel well was either too indulgent or tasted like cardboard or was just totally artificial. I didn't find something that fit with what I was looking for. So my impetus was trying, I was always on the lookout for healthy snacks and uh, kind was the recognition that there were not those options. What did you grab in, uh, before you concocted the kind bars? What, what are some of the things? I truly, sincerely did not have very good options. I, I would take sometimes just nuts and fruit, but then the nuts, you overate them because you couldn't do portion control. Which nuts? Almonds, primarily, uh, raw almonds. Yeah, of course, I also ate muffins, and I also still today eat, you know, uh, some indulgent snacks here and there. I'm not, I'm not perfect, but... More and more, I think every day for me it's a journey to try to uh, to improve my my lifestyle. I eat two kind bars every single day, no less than two. Today I've had three so far. How many varieties as of now are there of kind bars? I think we have like 25 flavors of kind bars. Do you worry at all about the burden of choice? I enjoy your bars, but I, I'm a little overwhelmed when I'm like, oh, I don't know, just give me yes. four choices. I, I agree. It's a very, very tough challenge. Did you read the book Paradox of Choice? Uh, no, but I understand the phenomenon. That's they, how I feel. Sometimes you feel paralyzed by right. those choices. So I, I think we do need to we look at this constantly, and it is a, a balance because when, when we discontinue products, the first right. person to pick up the phone is my brothers. Like, why do you always discontinue the ones that are my favorites? Because you always find someone that was the biggest fan of that walnut date or the sesame uh, chocolate, and they were among our lowest turning items, but they had a core following of fans, and so that's the tricky. And each of them is like your children; you love them all, so you don't want to like right. give the death to anyone. But you have to; you have to be disciplined. So, returning to the early days of Kind, here you are, like Willie Loman, uh, selling uh, your <laughs> your piece works. That's from Death of a Salesman, by the way. I know. Selling your your piece works. I know Willie Loman too well. I I can tell you my Willie Loman moment. Please. Uh, I'm in Waldbaum's 
which is a grocery uh, chain at their headquarters, and I look around. It's all vinyl furniture from the 1960s. Everybody surrounding me is like 50 years older than me, and they all have sampling suitcases like mine. And I'm like, wow, what am I doing with my life? And and uh, this was a, a, a very tough moment right before the launch of Kind. Little did I know that after 10 years of killing myself, success was just around the corner. Oh my God, we've been trying so hard and it just hasn't worked out. And with this Mediterranean spread company. Yeah, with the, with the Meditale spreads, they were great products, but there was a very small niche and there was a thousand things that I had done wrong. And I'm just like, wow, you know, I threw away my love career, my dad is worried, my mom is worried, and am I ever going to get married? Am I going to have children? With <laughs> but but I, I really, you know, we were having such difficult time making ends meet, just being able to make payroll, and just I had to take a $24,000 salary for many years, and many months I could not even pay myself uh, my my monthly uh, um, portion. And then, you know, a couple years later, suddenly Kind, we, we finally hit it with Kind, and then it just explodes. It just shows you that when you believe in something, you should be careful not to give up because right. it can be just around the corner. In that dark place, uh, little did you know that uh, the success of Kind was almost in your grasp. You continued to go to door to door. Still, after over a decade of this PeaceWorks company, you were fortunate, though, because you had this uh, distribution network in place, uh, albeit small, that the Mediterranean spreads was the Trojan horse for your Kind bars. We were fortunate, above all, that people liked us. That people thought these guys deserve a break. a break, and I think that was there was a lot of goodwill in there. Uh, if you had asked me the year when we launched Kind, whether I knew that it was going to succeed and be explosive, of course I believed in it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. But I, to be sincere, and I consider myself a person that has a good vision and and and, and can dream. I could have never imagined that KIND would become what it became. One of the innovations of KIND was that they were you know, actual nuts and fruit and that they weren't pasty. Why are so many bars historically that are sold in retail kind of of that, you know, th- that pasty consistency? Well, it's easier to run a product through the line if it's a paste or an emulsion. It's called a slab bar in their space because it goes slabs of product that fall in the sheeter and they are all homogeneous and they all run through the line very efficiently. So it's a very efficient way to run a lot of product very fast. And when we came up with our the temerity to try to think of it differently, a lot of times the manufacturers that we approached said, you know, it's not practical for us because your runs are very low and it's so much less efficient to run your product it was hard to convince not just the manufacturers, but even the retailers. We would go with our products and show them our whole nut and fruit bars. And they'd say, yeah, where do I put your product? I'm like, well, next to all these other nutritional bars. I'm like, no, 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 that's not a nutritional bar. Let me show you what a nutritional bar looks like. And they chose the the, our, the slab bars. And it was very hard to convince them to give us a shot in those sets. You were selling a product that you would say that you could, uh, whose ingredients you could see and pronounce. And uh, why was the clear package, uh, you know, such an innovation? Why were there opaque packages before? I mean, it seems it seems like common sense, but you know, what, what's so what's what's the big deal? The most uh, obvious things may not seem obvious before they're done, right? So when when we were doing it, the conventional wisdom was that 
you had to use opaque film to prevent the product from oxidizing, from losing moisture, and that you needed to use aluminum foil or other opaque materials. We worked really hard in creating clear wrappers with the technology that it could have all those properties through clear film. It's actually deceptively simple, but it was very hard to achieve that. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lubetsky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks, a food company that produces bars with whole nuts and fruit, among other products. I want to talk about nuts for a moment. I'm partial to almonds. There are rankings of of nuts that are more nutritional than others and more rare. And um, teach me something about nuts. Um, depends on which industry association you talk to. They each are going to tell you that theirs are better. But certainly, I think the consensus is that almonds, walnuts uh, are among the most helpful or a very helpful category. But everything that's nuts, pecans, uh, pistachios, cashews. cashews, also have some role. Cashews have more fat than than, uh, than almonds and walnuts. But what's more important to highlight is, did you read about the Harvard study? There was a study uh, that came out by, by the Harvard School of Medicine that if you eat more nuts, you will live longer. It was like staggering. I actually used to, when I even when I launched Kind and I knew it was a helpful product, I used to be very careful about not eating more than one Kind bar a day because I just felt that I don't want to eat too many fats. And the data indicates that what's powerful about nuts at a minimum is that they're highly satiating and so they displace empty calories. And then on top of that, the nuts have the fats that are helpful to your uh, heart, that help reduce your bad cholesterol levels. So I I do think that fundamentally nuts are an important building block. You mentioned almonds and walnuts. Are they more expensive? Yeah. On average, I think uh, almonds are increasing in price. We just had a very tough crop where our prices went way up. There's a huge problem right now with bees. Bees are dying. And almost like 70% of all of our human consumption is pollinated by bees. And bees are dying by hordes, and they have to transport them and pollinate different farms. And then the transportation and the the monopollination may be contributing to this problem of of, uh, bee collapse. It's a very serious, very scary problem. Regarding distribution, was there an important relationship or kind of pivot uh, that caused the floodgates to open on the distribution front? It's all been very gradual. Uh, we did it the right way this time because before, as a, when I was starting, I used to try to be everything everywhere as soon as you can. And you really need to be smart about your distribution and migration strategy. You need to first start with the product, the stores where your most solid consumer and fans are going to be. So it's like the whole foods and natural and the specialty stores. And so that's where we started. And we still today focus enormous efforts and marketing with our core because that's where they have traffic and loyal consumers. And only then we start going into national grocery chains and then convenience stores and, and specialty and alternative markets. And then only recently in the last couple of years that we started uh, going into mass accounts like whole uh, Walmart and Target and clubs like Costco and Sam's was very steady and gradual. You mentioned before that you paid yourself a $24,000 salary. uh, And initially, your marketing budget for the first few years was, you know, 
like $800 of your sampling budget. But your salary and the sampling budget took a turn in 2008 when you brought on private equity investors uh, in VMG, and they're a fund that uh, invests in consumer products. And Darius Bykoff, the founder of Vitamin Water, uh, or Glasso, made that introduction. Correct. How do you know Darius? So Darius was friends with Andy and Melissa Comer, who are my dear friends for many years. And I was con- entertaining another transaction, and I asked Darius for advice. And I said, do I need to do it this way, this way, this way, which I'm being told? And he said, no, you don't. You can do it whatever way you want. And let me actually introduce you to VMG, and uh, we'll co-invest. What I had done right until then was come up with a concept, with a product, with with a good culture in the company. What I had not done right is that after 15 years of being in the wilderness, I was so scared to take risks and to invest in letting more people try our product. That's why our sampling budget was $800 because I saw that as a as an expense to be caught rather than as an investment. And then we suddenly realized, wow, nine out of 10 people that try a kind bar become part of your franchise. And, and so... Thanks to my partners, we built a phenomenal film marketing team to let people sample. And so from the first, 2009, it was an $800,000 budget instead of $800 before. And then today, it's about $13 million that we go into just giving new kind bars to new consumers. Uh, And then in spring 2014, you bought back VMG's stake for $220 million, mostly cash deal, which was basically 13 times their initial investment. Things have have come a long way since that Wallbaum's moment. <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, and uh, the team that we have today, in particular, is you, every morning I wake up and I feel so blessed and so grateful to be working with people that are better than I will ever be at what they do. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lubetsky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks, a food company that produces bars with whole nuts and spices and fruit, among other products like granolas. I want to go back to your family for a moment. You mentioned before uh, that your father had this positive uh, stance. Do you feel like that was a biological proclivity, that he was just innately that way? You mentioned your grandfather was the same way. Um, That's a great question. I ask related questions all the time, but not particularly that question. It's a really great question. I don't know. I, I do think that, you know, I have four children and, from the day they're born, you can tell that they have personalities and it's fascinating and wonderful to see how they really are their own persons and they're quite different. I have twins and they are quite different from each other. But I also do think that nurture can guide a person and shape them. I think it's a combination of, uh, of DNA and genes and the environment. But then again, you know, how did my dad in such an environment manage to be such an extraordinarily sweet, warm, and loving person? Was it because by then, by the age of nine, he had already built it up? Do you meditate or exercise to enhance? uh, I take a lot of time to think. We are so barraged with inputs like inbox, email, voicemail, Twitter, messengers, this, that, and you carry your smartphone everywhere you go and you're just constantly trying to keep up with the data and read more news and we be- our brains are craving those data points. So I consciously try to find times in the day, sometimes when you run, um, 
but it might also just be when you're taking a shower. It might also be right before you go to bed. It might be when you just have half an hour to rest and you're about to grab that phone and you say, you know what, let me just be with myself. Let me talk to myself. Do you talk to yourself out loud? <laughs> no. Uh, I don't think I talk to myself out loud. Because in Judaism, uh, the reason you pray out loud is not so that God could hear you only. It's so that you could also hear yourself. That's beautiful. I'll start paying attention to that, but I think it's more uh, just Silent. focusing. Yeah. You are a magician. A magician, yeah. And magicians are entertainers. Making magic requires practice and repetition. In what way has magic influenced your business? I think magic is definitely a big part of my personality and who I am, both because it requires you to be innovative and creative and because of what you brought forth about how you need to be disciplined and practice, practice, practice. I think it's fun. I, and it also connects me to my dad because my dad used to teach me magic when I was a little kid. And then uh, when I was in college I, and, and in studying abroad in Europe, I paid my trips through Europe by doing magic shows in the streets of Paris and in uh, Bulgaria and just had a lot of adventures doing magic. What's one of your favorites? One of my favorite magic? Yeah. Wait, uh, changing the time on your watch. Mm. I love I love card tricks also. Speaking of cards, you have a, a kind card in your wallet. What is the meaning of this kind card? So this is our latest in our effort to try to find ways to creatively inspire kindness. The challenge in doing that is that kindness, by its very essence, the reason it works is that it's a pure act where there's no ulterior purposes. So how do you inspire kindness without destroying its authenticity. So we've been toying with it for 10 years, and our latest is this card called Kind Awesome Cards, where if we spot somebody that has done a kind act already, either to you or to a stranger, mm. then you celebrate them and say, you know, that was really kind of you and an appreciation for your kindness. We'd like to give you this card. And you go to the website, enter this code, and we send you a couple kind bars plus another Kind Awesome card that you can then give to somebody else to celebrate when they when you spot an act of kindness that they do. What's one act of kindness you spotted on the street the other day uh, which caused you to take out this card and give it to a stranger? Um, somebody seated their taxi to my wife and I. It was very, very nice. And I <laughs> went into my well, and they're like, oh, no, no, that's not necessary. They thought I was going to give them money. And I'm like, no, 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 this is what it is. And then they were really happy. Or somebody uh, seats their seat in the subway to somebody else. Or, or just, you know, on the sixth line on the subway lately, I don't know, people can get really mean to each other. And it's become like this laboratory of like social behavior. I don't know if you ever saw the Batman movie with the Joker where he's like creating these social experiments in Metropolis and people are like, are they going to do the right thing or the wrong thing? In the sixth train, a lot of times people are not doing the right thing. They're being really jerkish to each other. The trains are really delayed and it's kind of scary. So when somebody behaves really kindly in those environments, I, I, I give them one of those cards. On, this, on the sixth train, the Lexington Avenue in line in New York City, you mentioned your wife briefly. She's a doctor. What kind of doctor is she? She's a transplant nephrologist. Ah, kidney. Yeah, you know it. When I first met her and she's at a nephrologist, I'm like, oh, is that people that deal with the dead bodies? Like, no, that's a necrologist. I'm a nephrologist. It's kidney doctor. I'm like, okay, good to know. Mm. And a mother of four. And a mother of four and an incredible partner, the sweetest woman in the world. And she goes to the Bronx to help uh, for her job as a transplant nephrologist. And uh, she's on call this week. Well, thank you very much for joining us. 
Jessica, thank you so much for having those really interesting questions. My guest has been Daniel Lubetsky. Coming up, we'll meet Scott Moody, co-founder of Authentic. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Scott Moody, co-founder of Authentech, a company that makes fingerprint sensors that could unlock mobile phones and computers. Authentech was sold to Apple in 2012 for $356 million, and the fingerprint sensor first appeared on the iPhone 5S in 2013. Scott is also the co-founder of K4 Connect, a company that helps users integrate disparate technologies into one platform. Welcome. Well, thank you, Jessica. It's great to be here. So you worked at Harris Semiconductor for 18 years. You had some colleagues who introduced the idea of a fingerprint sensor technology to you. Can you talk about that moment when you first came into contact with this idea? There was a guy that worked for me, Nick Van Vano. He set up a meeting, wanted to introduce me to this other guy named Dale Setlack. You know, this was back a while ago, the, you know, late 1990s, and uh, I think we still wore suits or at least ties uh, into work most days. And here comes Dale. You know, Dale has uh, long hair uh, in a ponytail. He's a little bit bald on top. And, you know, he's wearing a nose ring. And I'm just like, who is this guy? They presented this idea of a fingerprint sensor. I'll be honest, Jessica, I didn't really think it was a great idea. But Nick, who I knew exceedingly well, thought it could work. Dale convinced me he was an incredibly smart guy. And I really saw the whole idea of passwords starting to be a a problem. So we actually started a research project around that very idea. Was the biometrics area um, a a busy place? I mean, you have uh, companies creating products to read your eyes. How big was was that space at the time? So in terms of actual dollars that people were spending outside of government, it was exceedingly small. In terms of the people that said they could do something, there was a lot. There was probably 50 or 60 fingerprint sensor companies out there. And what was it about your specific technology that made you think that you were different from those other companies? We, we truly had a better technology. You know, technically, all of them really were looking at the surface layer of your finger. So if your finger was dry or particularly if you were older, um, it actually had a number of issues. You know, as you get older, your skin becomes more supple. That's why we all have wrinkles. And so actually when you put your finger down on a lot of the surface-based sensors, the um, ridges of your fingerprint would collapse into the valleys and all you'd see was a big black blob. And so what we developed was something, at least at the time, we had brand named TruePrint. was this RF, or radio frequency field, that read through the outer layer of your finger to your what we refer to as your live layer, right, where your true fingerprint resides. In fact, if you sand down your finger to, you know, basically it's nice and smooth, it'll grow back exactly, you know, the same way. While you were interested, uh, finally, Harris Semiconductor, the company uh, that you were all with, was not interested in pursuing the idea. And you licensed the technology from uh, Harris and then started this on, on your own. Was that a tough conversation or separation? Yeah. I mean, you know, first off, I was quitting a pretty good job to go start this other company. At the same time, Harris Corporation, the parent company, was exceedingly supportive. They actually helped fund the company 
to start. Now, uh, you had some failed demos. Uh, there are some stories of, you know, you're presenting to the chief technology officer at IBM uh, and y- your technology not working. Can you uh, provide one or two examples? Uh, there's definitely demo hell, right? <laughs> so the, the one you talked about, I was uh, meeting with the CTO for IBM. So he sees the demo on the other side of the room. He puts his finger right down on the fingerprint sensor, and it says, hello, Dale Setlack. And, of course, is the co-founder and our CTO. So I was joking, like, you know, well, it recognized you as a CTO, you know. <laughs> so um, incredibly embarrassing. Uh, there was another one with Phoenix Technology, uh, the, the BIOS for uh, PCs. Um, we were in a very small room, and I was set it up on a separate table in the corner, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the system yells, access denied. And I'm telling you, it sounded so loud in that little room, and I ignored it. I was pretending like I didn't even see it. He's looking at me as I'm giving my pitch like, is there something wrong? Two minutes later, it does it again. So, of course, at that point, I had to admit there was a little bit of a problem. But you definitely feel, again, what people refer to as that demo hell. Tell me briefly about uh, just your impressions of raising capital. Here's the thing about startups. Everybody tells you who funded the company. What they don't tell you usually is all the people that rejected you. So to me, raising money, honestly, is like the guy on the side of the road with a cardboard sign asking for money. 98% of the cars drive by and don't do anything. You know, 1.5% throw something at you or give you the finger. And 0.5% stop and give you money. You beg. I want to talk about some of your early prototypes. Some of them didn't work very well. Can you tell me about that? So, you know, when our first product came out, it, it didn't work, our first prototype. And I, I mean, it didn't not, like, work well. It, like, freaking didn't work. So uh, that night we called the entire team together, and, and it was probably like 7 o'clock at night. I asked the question, how many people don't think we're going to make it? I, 20 people in the room, I think 15 of them raised their hands. And... Jessica, I would have raised my hand, but I didn't think it would look good because I was the CEO, right? Talk about it, gave a rah-rah speech, and then, of course, as is important in any startup, we all went out and had some drinks. So the next day, uh, come back in, we map out the plan, gave another rah-rah talk, and then, again, we went out drinking. So that second night, I can remember going home, and I hardly ever talk about work at home, but that night... You know, I remember sitting down in our our living room with my wife, and I was just, like, rambling on. I was just like, honey, I am so sorry. You know, I quit a good job. You know, we have the three kids. Uh, You know, I've ruined our life. I was just whining like crazy. And I'm pretty sure my wife probably said something in those two hours, but I don't remember it, right, because I was so busy whining. But I do remember this, Jessica. It was like at the end of the conversation, my wife said to me, you know what you need to do, so just go do it. You know, my wife could have turned around and said, yeah, you're right. You know, we need the money. Uh, You know, go get a job. But she didn't. Had she not said that that night, 
Authentech may not have gone forward. So it was an incredibly important moment in my life. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Scott Moody, co-founder of Authentic, the company that made the fingerprint scanning technology on your Apple iPhone. You worked a lot with dermatologists in developing the technology. How were they helpful to you? Really, the whole idea was to understand the various conditions of the skin. What I really gained experience on was outside, let's say, the dermatologist and actually testing. So we would go to construction sites, Mm -hmm. right, to test, you know, people that were used to working with their hands Mm -hmm. because they're all scarred up. They may be worn down. We would go to retirement communities. We would go to a lot of different places where, you know, there were populations that maybe have, you know, a different finger than, than I did as, you know, back then. Before you and Apple connected, you were focused on not just the iPhone or the mobile phone market, but computers and what other uh, instruments uh, were you um, looking to get this technology integrated in? So in the beginning of the company, we really had this idea, look, let's go develop the technology. And it has application in a lot of different markets. It can be, you know, for automotive, PCs, cell phones. But when we really saw that the PC market was taking off and then the cell phone market, we generally stopped paying attention mm-hmm. to those uh, other markets. Now, you chose the PC market at a time, though, when people were not maybe spending as much money for PCs because this is during 2008, right? All of a sudden, high-end PCs disappeared. Mm-hmm. And for us, the challenge was that was our market, these you know, generally over $1,000 high-end PCs. And if you remember, you know, the beginning of 2009, those weren't selling. So then how did you pivot then from your market, which at the time was high-end PCs, to then mobile phones? Really, the people that got us our start in in mobile and and really for the whole company in terms of the, the largest first orders was Docomo and Fujitsu out of Japan. The big issue, frankly, Jessica, was is that our fingerprint sensor was ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, you know, you literally could see and touch the fingerprint sensor. So the big focus when the downturn hit was if we really wanted to get into smartphones, aesthetics was incredibly important. And we started on this whole idea of how do we cover up the fingerprint sensor, mm-hmm. right, so that you don't really see it and it aesthetically matches mm-hmm. with the phone. And so I think really that gave us a big push right, to eventually be acquired. You went public in 2007, which was a big moment for you. I mean, here you are, a guy from New Jersey, and uh, here you are ringing the bell at NASDAQ with your with your wife and three daughters. Can you talk about that moment for a second? So it was freaking cool. When you take a company public, it's kind of like winning the Super Bowl. My daughters actually rang the bell to open the stock exchange. And, uh, you know, every time I even say that or think about it, I get a little tingle and I just had one. That was a great thing to share, you know, with with my wife and daughters. Um, And of course, the team as well and their families who also came up. When did you get on to Apple's radar screen? Look, uh, it's funny because people ask me, how long does the design win take? What does that mean? The the design win? Actually, the OEM or the customer saying, we will design in your product. The honest answer is anywhere between about three months and 14 years. In the Apple case, look, I met with them in uh, 1998. I don't even remember who. And then, of course, in 2012, they acquired us. And a year later, it came out in their 
I guess, the iPhone, you know, 5S. So that, what's that, 14-year design in? When you presented it in 1998, you probably were thinking about it for Apple computers. No, that's exactly right. Because the iPhone nor the smartphones really, as a category, existed in 1998. Authentic was sold to Apple in 2012, but you didn't know what they were going to use the technology for. And it wasn't until Apple made the public announcement that they had this new touch sensor in their phone that you found out that it was in the phone. Yeah, I I had no idea. I mean, obviously, Apple's a very confidential company. They certainly didn't share their secrets with me. And so I was just like everybody else. And, And let me tell you, that was... Like, that was really cool. That was just probably as good as the IPO. And I didn't probably realize how big it was, like, of an announcement until my phone just blew up. Text, phone calls, emails, congratulations, and great job. Uh, Really, I had nothing to do with the iPhone 5S or the Touch ID. I can remember a text from my daughter, my oldest daughter, who texted me something. I'm going to paraphrase is not exactly right, but it was something like, Dad, how's it feel to, you know, really, you know, change the face of mobile technologies? From a girl that, you know, it wasn't that much earlier that she really didn't like me too much. (laughs) That was neat. You started off as the CEO and then stepped down. How was that for you personally? I see that a lot, you know, with founders having to um, step aside from a leadership role and some take it gracefully, like, yeah, there's a better guy to lead this and some take it, you know, a little more as a punch in the stomach. Like, where are you on that spectrum? Uh, I was incredibly happy (laughs) when Larry (laughs) took over. Um, I was burnt. I was completely burnt. And, And really, we had hired Larry or I had hired Larry, who it took me six months to recruit into the company. Hired him before he went to the IPO, really with the idea that not long after the IPO, he would replace me. And I didn't really much like being a public company CEO. But that's when the 08, 09 downturn uh, happened. So, you know, frankly, the board didn't want me to go. And Larry didn't really want to take over about right then. So I committed to, you know, stay a couple of years later. As part of an a- another acquisition, it was, uh, it was really great that Larry uh, stepped in. Why do you think you were so burned out? I mean, is it just like inherent in a startup and an IPO and all of that energy and challenge that comes with that? Yes. And it's like, you know, you finish this marathon and somebody's, well, hey, would you mind starting another marathon? And then you finish that marathon and it's like, look, you know, I'll give you five minutes rest, but do you mind doing this other marathon? I want to talk about um, your upbringing for a moment. You grew up in New Jersey. You, what, what did your parents do? So actually, my father worked here in New York for uh, a number of years. Unfortunately, in 1972, he was, uh, he was laid off from the, his job, ended up uh, working uh, in some bars, and eventually my parents were able to acquire their own bar. What was he doing that he was laid off? So he was, uh, well, he was in technology, but if you consider technology typewriters at the time, so he was in uh, a sales of typewriters. There's a story that your dad, after he was laid off, pretended to go to work because he didn't want his children to know that he was laid off. I can remember not only that experience with my father, but, you know, certainly back in, in that generation where they didn't want to admit something like that. Mm-hmm. So I can remember when he first told, you know, my mother. Um, I can remember uh, driving 
you know, a couple neighborhoods over or towns over to go to a grocery store because my parents were using, you know, food stamps at the time and they didn't want us to see it. So I had great, you know, incredibly loving parents that really taught me well. They just fell on hard times. I read about your father in a blog post that you wrote. This was on the eve of your having surgery for a brain tumor in spring of 2015. How did you even find out that you had a brain tumor? I was having hearing issues, and then I felt a facial tick. Uh, really just went to an ear doctor. If you're going to have a brain tumor, I had a good one, uh, <laughs> you know, in that it was actually not in my brain. It was just up against my brain. And you found out that you had this tumor right when you were starting your new company, and you had just returned from a trip to Rwanda, which was the inspiration for starting your new company. So a lot going on. I had retired um, after, you know, Apple acquired the company. I told you I was burnt out. I was never going to work again. Um, Went to Rwanda. I had been there before on on mission trips. During the tour and, and the visits with various entrepreneurs in Rwanda, I met this woman. So I'm talking to her, and, you know, she had gone over right after the genocide, eventually opened up 15 different orphanages, started baking cakes for the kids for their birthday. Next thing you know, she's opening a bakery and baking cakes for people all over Kigali. And then she bought this coffee shop, and she only employed battered women. I mean, it's like, geez, how great can your story be? She was talking about expanding her coffee shop, and she said... I could use the proceeds from this to further God's will in other ways. So I went back to my wife. I I was done being burnt out. I wasn't dead yet, had plenty of energy. And that was the whole idea that, look, let's, uh, if we start another company and it is successful, we don't want the money. In fact, it would be embarrassing, but we could use it. You could fund these projects in Rwanda. And other places, right? So, you know, that was really the motivation for K4 Connect. This is sort of like the Internet of Things. There, where It's you exactly have... the Internet of Things. So it's this whole idea of integrating various devices and systems into, to me, a system that's responsive to my needs. Your first product is still specifically with senior citizens and people with disabilities. And what was the catalyst for that specifically? As I was really looking at where we were going to apply the technology, and actually I was meeting with this guy on a completely different subject at a coffee shop. He had reached out to me on homelessness. And so after talking about his advocacy, he asked me what we did. And I told him, and it turns out he has MS. And he used the cane, but I didn't know it because he was at the coffee shop before I was and it was under the table. As I introduced the subject, Eric stopped me and he said, look, let me tell you guys why this is important to me. He says, the way I look at my day is when I wake up in the morning, I figure I have the energy for a thousand good steps in my day. And how I use those steps defines the quality of my life. Then he pointed at us and he said, you guys can make my life better. And so, Jessica, I'll tell you, you know, for me, on a very personal level, it was an oh God moment. Like, if I felt called to start another company in Rwanda, like it was unbelievably freaking clear to me at that moment that that's why. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jessica. I really appreciate your time. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest has been Scott Moody, co-founder of Authentic. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.